Coming up next, it's The Trial of Lizzie Borden by Kara Robertson. The question is, did she give her father the 40 wax or was it somebody else? Did she have a bad rep? It's a true story by a very brilliant woman, Kara Robertson, who has a hell of a long list of accomplishments of her own. Be with us for The Trial of Lizzie Borden. This is one you're not gonna wanna miss. This is Alan Chartok, and I'm delighted to be in conversation today with Dr. Kara Robertson, author of The Trial of Lizzie Borden, A True Story. Kara Robertson began researching the Borden case as a Harvard undergraduate in 1990. She holds a PhD in English from Oxford University and a JD, Dr. Juris, from the Stanford Law School. She has clerked at the Supreme Court of the United States, served as a legal advisor to the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia at The Hague, and has written for various publications. I should also add that I have a personal interest in the story of Lizzie Borden because my home has a connection to the Dewey family, Justin Dewey being one of the associate judges in the Lizzie Borden trial. Just one more reason why I'm excited to be with Dr. Kara Robertson today. Welcome, Dr. Robertson. Thank you for having me. Well, we're delighted. So anyway, this house was built around 1912. Judge Dewey never made it to this house. He built it for his wife and daughters who lived in it for quite a while. But we're so proud of the Dewey aspect of the house that my wife finally found a wonderful little picture of Justin Dewey and had it blown up maybe a hundred times. And he overlooks anybody who walks into the house, big picture. So when I saw your book, The Trial of Lizzie Borden, I said, oh, well, we got to talk about that. Justin Dewey was a wonderful man, very important in the town of Great Barrington, Massachusetts. And I think he proved that in the trial too, or so you say. Yes, he was, he was viewed as kind of tender-hearted in addition to being a first-rate judge, he gives the charge to the jury trying to explain what the evidence might mean or a way that they could understand it, uh, although the, the ultimate decision obviously is left to the jurors themselves. So I read your book, and I read that charge. I had the feeling he was for getting her off. <laughs> I think that that's a fair reading. He comes into some criticism for that because it, I think it's difficult to read the charge and not get the sense that the prosecution really hasn't done its work. And not everyone, you know, not everyone agreed with that interpretation. But I think he makes some fair points. Well, there were big gun lawyers on both sides, both the prosecution and the defense, a point you make extremely well. And when we are introduced to these people, give us a little idea on who is on each side. Well, as you say, the legal talent was considerable. 
On the prosecution side, there were two men, one named Hosea Knowlton, who was the district attorney for the New Bedford area in Bristol County. Uh, and he went on to be the attorney general of, of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts and was extremely highly regarded. His co-counsel was a man named William Moody, who went on to become a justice of the United States Supreme Court. And on the defense side was the former governor of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, Governor Robinson, in addition to two other lawyers. Robinson is the key player, probably. Well, when one reads the book, first of all, I found myself being very partial to Lizzie, <laughs> if I may call it that. And I like Robinson an awful lot. I felt he was a very decent guy. But the heavies seemed to me to be the prosecutors the way the book, at least the way it came across to me. Did you mean to do that? <laughs> no, I thought I was being quite fair-minded about it. I really admire the prosecutors. I think that the battles in the case between the prosecution and the defense really shows different styles of lawyering. So you have the prosecutors time and time again presenting what we call black letter law, technically perfectly, uh, and also being inclined, at least in the case of Knowlton, to a certain amount of high-minded oratory. Uh, and on the defense side, Governor Robinson is someone who's a lot more casual, or at least seemingly casual. And he has the ability to make it seem as he, he's just stopped by the courtroom for a chat. And he's terrific at spinning these stories in which Lizzie Borden appears as sort of a sentimental heroine who's being put upon by the prosecutors and the police. And that is quite effective. Believe it or not, there may be some people who don't even know the story of Lizzie Borden. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how this happened and how it unfolded? Well, it all started on August 4th, 1892, when Andrew and Abby Borden were found hacked to death in their home in Fall River, Massachusetts. Fall River, Massachusetts was at the time the third largest city in Massachusetts and was its center for textile production. Andrew Borden was quite a wealthy man, though he lived on a fairly narrow scale. And the assumption really was that there must have been some madman who had gotten in uh, and created the mayhem in the house. Some even thought that Jack the Ripper might have come over from England because the scene was so horrifying. Yes, but how did Lizzie come to get blamed and go on trial? Well, besides the Bordens, there were three other people in the house that morning. The housemaid, Bridget Sullivan, Mr. Borden's brother-in-law from his first marriage, a man named John Morse, and Lizzie Borden. And the other two had alibis, and so were ruled out as suspects, and that sort of left Lizzie. Now, there were many people who thought, as I said, that it must have been an outsider who came in, but the front and the back doors were locked, and so that meant only a side door was available for someone to sneak in. And probably most significant, both to the police and later to the prosecution, was the interval between the murders. Abby was killed first, about 9.30 in the morning, upstairs. Now, that's the stepmother who we know Lizzie couldn't stand. Right. We know that there was a lot of dissatisfaction and discord in the household, and most of it seemed to center on the relationship between Lizzie, Emma, and Abby. So Emma was Lizzie's older sister. Right. And neither one of the girls, or women rather, by this age, I'm, I'm falling into the idiom of the time, but neither one of the women liked their stepmother. They had reason to dislike her because of a property dispute. And how old was Lizzie when all of this happened? Lizzie was 32 years old. 
Wow. Uh, she was unmarried and living at home. So at that point, that's considered spinsterhood, right? I know it's a terribly sexist word, but... Right. The average age of marriage was, was in the early 20s at that point. So she was definitely a spinster. But at the same time, she ticks all the boxes of proper middle-class womanhood. She's very active in her church, where she even taught Sunday school. And, you know, there was a role for her to play as an unmarried woman. It just was very limited because of the notion of, you know, separate spheres at that time. You've got a lot of great pictures in the book. Looking at Lizzie, she looks like a formidable, strong woman. This, of course, is very important to the prosecution because it took an awful lot of work to murder these two people if she did it. Right. The prosecution puts on medical testimony to say that really any woman could have committed the murders as long as there was a handle of sufficient size to give, whether it was a hatchet or an axe, appropriate leverage. But Lizzie Borden's physical appearance is very important because it's key to whether or not people, particularly the jurors, can, can imagine that she could have done such a thing. And although she, she has what many note as a kind of determined demeanor, she's a pretty ordinary size. She's described as really being quite average size when you see her in person, you know, neither large nor small or tall or short. And that factors into the case, too. So it would have taken a great deal of effort for a, a woman of that average size to kill not only her stepmother, but the father. And that, I think, became a big part of what people were thinking. Right. It's, it's sort of key. Can they really imagine that someone who looks like her could have done such a thing? And a lot of that is about physical capacity, about size. But it also has to do with the assumptions about the general goodness of women, particularly women of her class. And the idea then would be that she's just not psychologically capable of such a thing, let alone physically. Now, Kara Robertson, one of the points you make in the book, which I'm fascinated by, is this became sort of a dividing line, this case, between the haves and the have-nots, the upper classes and those people who didn't have all of those advantages. How so? Well, Fall River was a divided town. As I mentioned, it was a textile town, and there was you know, a big separation between the people who owned the mills and the people who worked in the mills. And then there was a middle class as well of professional people and small businessmen. But in Fall River, the topography mirrored the social structure so that people who were higher in class status tended to live higher in this area of the hill. And then people who lived closer to the mills tended to be the people who worked in the mills. And that was significant. It it just created a, almost like a physical barrier between, or rather among the different classes. And there were many among the working classes and the papers that served them who believed that if Lizzie Borden had been a mill hand, she would have been arrested immediately and not treated with such kid gloves. Now, as we know, the jury found her unanimously not guilty. So who was on the jury? All men. As it happens, there weren't women on Massachusetts juries until 1951. And the men were mostly rural, typically farmers. There was one Irish Catholic. The rest were Protestants. And many of them had families where they might have imagined themselves in, you know, Andrew Borden's position. Now, how important was Lizzie's relationship with her father? Did she have resentments about where she lived, how she lived, how much money she was getting? 
Yeah, it was said that she and her sister resented their father's more modest style of living. He was rich enough to live on the hill, which is to say the elite residential district in the town. Uh, And clearly she would have preferred that. But they also were quite close and quite similar in temperament. And that's something that both the prosecution and the defense talk about. The prosecution doesn't know quite what to do with it. It's quite comfortable talking about her resentment of her stepmother, but very uncomfortable suggesting that Lizzie Borden might have intended to kill her father. The defense, by contrast, goes all out on the sentimental portrait of the father-daughter bond. What about the relationship with the sister? You know, you write very interestingly throughout the book on that relationship, including the fact that they had a conversation at one point which was overheard and could have been very damaging to Lizzie. Yeah, this is a conversation that they have in the jailhouse that's overheard by a matron. And it speaks to to the difference in temperament in the sisters. Emma was a little bit of a substitute mother for Lizzie, at least in in the early part of her life. She was about nine years older and was about 14 at the time that they lost their mother, whereas Lizzie was barely three. And Lizzie, by all accounts, is the determined forthright person in the pair. And Emma is much more retiring. Did Lizzie do it? (laughs) You don't know, nobody knows. Right. Well, this is sort of a non-spoiler alert. As you know from reading the book, I actually don't take a position you don't. Uh, on that question because I think that it's much better to just lay out all the evidence and tell the story as it unfolds because there are things that are contradictory in the story. And so that my experience is that when you, when you read a book that, that has a solution to a mystery like this that's endured for so long, you know, inevitably people are downplaying the things that don't conform to the solution that they've chosen. So I I think that, you know, it's been a mystery for over 125 years for a reason. At the very least, even if you don't think it's a whodunit, I mean, even if you're quite confident that the police picked the right person, then it's a whydunit. You know, it's hard to imagine how someone could have done such a thing. So, Kara Robertson, if in fact Lizzie Borden didn't do it, then who did? Well, that's the question I think we're all left with, right? There's no obvious outside perpetrator. The defense does a good job of saying, look, you know, it's not our job to clear up the mystery. Just because we don't know exactly who it was doesn't mean that Lizzie Borden must therefore have done it. However, as the prosecution put it, it's really difficult to imagine that anyone else could have gotten into the house in that window of time and committed these crimes and then walked off into the street. But they didn't have specific evidence, right? I mean, it's one thing to say circumstantial, which we hear a lot about now as well as then, but they didn't have enough. Uh, There was a big issue as to um, whether there was a a spot of blood. Uh, There was a burned dress. She burned a dress. There was a spot of blood on, I think, a petticoat or something, and there was an issue that it might have been menstruation that was responsible for that spot of blood. So that, that was fascinating to me. What do they have? Well, there is a little bit of a, you know, CSI Fall River that comes with the police. You know, they come in and they pull up all of the molding around the doors, uh, pieces of the carpets, and they examine it and they try to count bloodstains. But the key piece of evidence, as far as the defense is concerned, is that there is no blood found on Lizzie except, as you point out, this tiny, tiny little spot on a petticoat. 
And the assumption is that whoever killed the Bordens must have been spattered with blood. And so how on earth could she have gotten rid of that much blood in that length of time? And the prosecution's argument for that is, well, she must have been shielded with this dress that has disappeared uh, and that she burned. Lizzie was able to show that it had been stained with paint, but it's still quite suspicious or in legal parlance, you know, it shows some consciousness of guilt that she chose to burn the dress the Sunday after the murders. And if, in fact, there was a dress that had been stained with paint, as she said, why didn't the police find that when they conducted their inventory of her dresses? Kara Robertson, you're Dr. Jurisprudence, you know a great deal about law. How did this trial conform with the way we would do it today? It's not as different as you would think. I think, you know, that on the surface, it it looks very similar. Uh, And we're certainly aware of this kind of celebrity trial in a way that was less familiar in that era. I mean, this is, it is in the heyday of yellow journalism. And it is also, you know, after the (laughs) invention of the telegraph. So it's possible to send the news to these daily dispatches around the country and indeed internationally. I think that, you know, to a certain extent, the press frenzy over Lizzie Borden and the obsession with how she looks at all moments of the trial and the way in which the lawyers become public figures and characters and even the journalists become public figures and characters as a result of the coverage. uh, That's quite familiar to those of us who lived through the O.J. Simpson trial. So you have this very distinguished defense team. Who paid for them? Who paid for a former governor to be the chief counsel? Yeah, it was about $25,000 worth of legal talent for him alone. Which is a lot of money then. That's right. And Lizzie and Emma paid for it. Really? They split the fee. But, you know, they put their inheritance to good use very quickly. Wow, that's interesting. And there was a lot to lose, not only on his part, Robinson, but also on the part of the prosecutors. I mean, that was one you didn't want to lose, right? Yeah, there is a certain ambivalence in Knowlton. That is at least what I get sense. I'm sorry, the the lead prosecutor. That's what I get from reading his letters to the attorney general. Publicly, he was very fierce. And he absolutely believed that Lizzie Borden was guilty. And he believed it was his duty to prosecute her. But he found it painful. You know, he was a kind-hearted family man. And I don't think he relished putting a woman like Lizzie Borden on trial. The question, of course, is the poem. Nothing made her more famous than she gave her parents 40 wax. Who wrote that poem? Do we know? We don't know. It turns up pretty quickly afterwards, and it's supposed to be sung to the tune of Tarara Boumdier, which I won't demonstrate. <laughs> But it had a profound effect on the way people, every kid grows up having heard that poem, right? That's right. She's definitely been convicted by the rhyme. And that is a large part of probably what accounts for her continuing infamy. Right. You say in the book, and it's interesting, that there are a whole bunch of people who made out sort of like bandits as a result of this. People bought the house, they give tours, they do play acting, really quite an industry. That's right. It's, you know, locally in, in Fall River, she's a big earner. There's <laughs> the, uh, the Historical Society does an extremely correct, historically accurate presentation of the case and where it fits into Fall River's history. The house where the murders took place is operated as a bed and breakfast, which indicates that there are enough people who are drawn to the case that they'd like to spend the night in the place where the murders happened. How much time did you have to spend there in Fall River? 
I made an annual, you know, pilgrimage <laughs> in the summers, mostly to work at the Historical Society in the public library. You but, started this in college. What was it that made you so prescient about the whole thing? Well, I suppose, like, you know, like many people, I was drawn to the mystery, you know, that it's a it's a whodunit and a whydunit. And I really like the idea of using a great public trial, something that generated huge press coverage as well as legal transcripts. And using that as a lens onto the Gilded Age of American history. Is there a feminist aspect to this in contemporary terms? Sure. That's part of what interests me about the case, that, you know, Lizzie Borden is herself a little bit of an unreadable cipher. She's viewed as, at the trial, you know, by her contemporaries as a kind of human sphinx. And some consider that a sign of ladylike bearing, and some say that it's, you know, a sign of this kind of masculine nerve that's consistent with murder. But the fact that she has this opaque quality means that people can project what they want or what concerns them onto this figure of Lizzie Borden. And so she becomes a kind of anti-feminist horror story, the, you know, example of what happens when women, you know, pick up a hatchet and, and fight for their rights. But she also has, especially more recently, become a more sympathetic feminist heroine, particularly, I'd say, post hashtag Me Too. This idea that she might have been just striking out against these rapacious men in her life and seeking an independence from their intrusiveness. 2,000 people showed up at her house. <laughs> When she was acquitted, 2,000 people, that's a lot of people. So she became sort of a popular hero, at least to some. Right. Initially, her acquittal is very popular. You know, there is some local muttering in Fall River among the immigrant populations or the working class. But as a general matter, her vindication in the court of law is greeted with great enthusiasm. The problem is that, you know, once the once the dust settles on the trial, then it's clear there really isn't another suspect. And people begin to wonder, you know, if it wasn't Lizzie Borden, then who was it? She also doesn't really live down her notoriety in a way that Fall River might find acceptable. She and Emma move from the small house that was the source of dissatisfaction to this McMansion in the Hill District. And they find themselves, or Lizzie in particular, finds herself frozen out of the church that had provided the bedrock of her support during the trial. People stopped coming to the church. Empty pews is because she was there. Right. She gets the message. There's a way in which the Fall River elite backs her when she's threatened by outsiders and when the case threatens to become uncomfortable for them. But then they exercise their own kind of punishment you know, effectively some kind of mild ostracism where she's shown that she is not going to be welcomed back into her old pursuits. Now, Lawyer Robertson, that's you. How come, <laughs> how come they decided not to put her on the stand? You know, we often think that, okay, I'm not going to have to testify because he's guilty or she's guilty. What was the thinking there, you think? Well, the thinking was she's a terrible witness. She testified at the, her inquest and the inquest provided, from her own words, evidence of her shifting stories about where she was at the time of the two murders. And it also made her hatred of her stepmother quite clear. So really, the last thing the defense wanted was to put her on the stand. And in fact, they were able to make sure that the jury never heard the inquest testimony. And that was one of their 
great triumphs was was keeping evidence of Lizzie Borden's guilt away from the jury. Tell me about the role, Kara Robertson, of the judges. Now, it's interesting because I guess if it's a capital case, if I'm not misinterpreting this, you have to have three judges as opposed to one. That's and, right. That was the rule then. Yeah. And my hero, you know, Judge Dewey from our house to talk about people, you know, latching on to whatever piece of this they can. One wonders about the way in which they divided the work between them. I mean, Judge Dewey, the guy who built this house that I'm living in now, Judge Dewey gave the charge. And it seemed to me, as I think I've said, that the charge basically said, let her off. That's right. I think actually he did most of the work. Really? <laughs> because he's often spotted on the weekends still in the area, you know, walking out to the point to get some AC air, whereas the other judges are on the first train out of town. Uh, and part of it is that, as you say, he's the one who's responsible for the charge. So he's the one who's taking these very careful notes in addition to the stenographers. And his charge was largely considered to be, you know, effectively a plea for the defense. And some would say that, that to go back to your question of why Lizzie Borden didn't testify, um, that his explanation of why she didn't testify was almost as if he were testifying for her, mm -hmm. uh, so that it was, it was considered to be that favorable to her. It put the best possible construction on anything that, that the jury would have heard about her throughout the trial. I was fascinated by the very careful... Uh, work you had done on what was in the newspapers at the time. Those newspapers became crucial to either appeal or disgrace, didn't they? Yes. It's interesting to see how they divide. You know, that, that I think that we're not, we're not used to the idea that every local jurisdiction, let alone big cities, would have multiple newspapers. And they had a number of um, correspondents and reporters who would provide the what you might call the color commentary of the courtroom uh, and give a sense of, of how each piece of evidence or a swatch of witness testimony was actually received. And they definitely worked to shape public opinion. Now, at the time, the New York Times was not the New York Times of today, but they were covering the trial, as were an awful lot of people. Where was the Times? Could you read into what they had written as to whether they had an agenda? Well, the Times seemed consistent with most of the bigger papers, which is that they basically thought Lizzie Borden was innocent, or at least that there wasn't enough evidence to convict her. The Times doesn't send a correspondent who is a character in his or her own right, as some of the other papers do. So it's difficult to get a sense um, Mm -hmm. of whether there was a, you know, an agenda there. But their editorial commended the uh, verdict. Who were the major journalistic stars? Uh, the three that I focus on, because they're, the, they're big names at the time, and they also provide interesting perspectives, are Joe Howard Jr., who was the highest paid columnist of his day, who had worked for the Times, uh, but was covering the trial for the Boston Globe. A man named Julian Ralph, who covered it for The Sun, and a woman named Elizabeth Jordan, who covered the trial for the world. 
And where were they in terms of for or dinner? <laughs> uh, as Elizabeth Jordan uh, writes in her memoir later, that they were they were for Lizzie Borden to a man, though she includes herself in that. That's uh, that they write very sympathetically of her, as particularly as the trial goes on, and they and they watch her. Um, both her composure as a general matter and then the instances in which that composure gives way at moments of, you know, great pathos or horror. For example, when the uh, skulls of her mm-hmm. father and stepmother are displayed in court. They bring the skulls out and they show where the axe could have hit. That's right. One of the um, journalists describes the uh, medical expert as having a very cheery way of fitting the possible murder weapon into the skulls. Oh, boy. Now, into all of this, some things don't change, comes sex, because there was a a good deal of speculation as to whether Lizzie had a lover. Right. Actually, the story really doesn't have any sex, but people seem to want it. The assumption is really that there just, there isn't a good enough motive unless there's a romance, you know, preferably preferably a thwarted one. And that would have the advantage also of giving her perhaps an accomplice. And so intense is the desire for this as an explanation that the Boston Globe publishes what turns out to be a complete hoax. An article uh, fed their reporter by an unscrupulous detective who said that Lizzie Borden was pregnant and her father knew about it and threatened to turn her out of the house. And they had it was to all apologize. a complete lie. But, and they had to but, apologize for it, didn't they? That's right. And it, it was a bad day for the defense team, but it, it probably was good for her longer term because it, it meant that the Boston Globe was quite chastened. And now you make the point towards the end of your book that uh, there was even some speculation that maybe the father had been abusing Lizzie. Well, I think that's an example of, of the way in which we bring our own perspectives to these historical cases. That was your perspective? Uh, No, it's that this, as an explanation, suddenly becomes in vogue, or rather suddenly becomes obvious, something that people think about in the 90s, or as it had never really occurred to people before, and you're looking at the same information. So I I think it's a way in which we bring our own preoccupations to the era, which is, as I said, not to say that it couldn't have happened. I mean, there is something about the festering tension in the house that is quite unhealthy and you wonder where that comes from but the things that people cite as evidence of that kind of sexual abuse are things that might have been quite typical of other families in that time and that's the part that's sort of missing from the analysis usually now because i was confused i read the book and i was fascinated by every page but did she really love her father or did she hate him because he didn't give her enough money and because, you know, he didn't live in the right house and he didn't give her enough respect? Well, it, it's it's hard to say, right? If you know, I mean, we're assuming if we're assuming that she killed him, you know, the murder itself is a is an act of obliteration. If you see the pictures of him, it's all centered on his face. And so it's it's hard to say. I'm sorry. The, what is what does obliteration mean now in this case? Oh, I'm sorry. He's you know all of the blows, the ten blows that he received yeah. are concentrated on his face. Yes. I mean, in in both cases, there you know there there are many more whacks than are necessary to kill the people. Uh-huh. So there is you know it's it's hard not to see those as acts of you know whether it's rage or insanity or what. I mean, it's not it's not a simple desire to just get a better house. 
I mean, there has to be something more there or, you know, it's just hard to imagine those, those particular kinds of murders. Uh, but it does seem that she was close to her father. As I said, temperamentally, I think they were quite alike. The name of the book is The Trial of Lizzie Borden. We're talking with Kara Robertson, who's got a pretty distinguished vita of her own. You clerked in the Supreme Court of the United States. Any ties between the Supreme Court and the trial of Lizzie Borden? <laughs> well, one of the prosecutors ends up serving on the Supreme Court. So that's the, that's the, main, the main tie. Who did you clerk for? I clerked for retired Justice Byron White and Justice John Paul Stevens. Wow, those are two good ones, as opposed to some bad ones. Uh, <laughs> no comments. <laughs> Wizzer White, he was a Kennedy appointment, actually, right? I believe he was. That's absolutely right. It was his only I, appointment. I okay, so this passion of yours about Lizzie Borden goes along with your entire biography. I mean, we're talking about Stanford Law School, a great law school, Oxford University, Supreme Court of the United States, and yet Lizzie stays with you. How come? Well, I think it's just such an interesting case, you know, both because of the unsolved mystery that it, it has an almost mythic quality to it. Um, I call it a, a locked room mystery written by Sophocles. You know, so it has all of the, what you might call the pleasures of a normal detective story where there are a limited number of suspects, though there's the, always the possibility of Mr. X. And at the same time, it is at its base the story of this extremely unhappy family. And so the, I think that that stays with one. And then I, as I became uh, more committed to the law as a career, I began to see in it a, a way to talk about the way a, a, a law and society work together. You know, it's so interesting. My wife is writing a book about Elvis Presley right now, and Elvis has become a member of our family in many ways. I never cared, <laughs> that, much, cared that much about him, but we have Elvis throw pillows, and we have stuff around here that when we went down to Memphis, we met with all of the people who knew him and who were still all around. So he becomes a very central figure in our family. Now, it sounds to me like uh, Lizzie, she's part of you whether you like it or not. Uh I actually had the opposite reaction. Um, really? Yeah, I have no Lizzie paraphernalia. <laughs> okay. Um, aside from outside of my office, I would say that the people who stay with me are the other characters because we know more about them. So I really got to know the lawyers and the journalists very well. Um, and I think I understand them as people a lot better. And then I'm quite interested in a lot of the ancillary um, people in the neighborhood who are around Lizzie Borden. I mean, I'm, obviously I'm interested in Lizzie Borden too, or I wouldn't have written this book, but, but I, I do think there's something about her that's a little bit unknowable. And actually I thought that was important to maintain, to write the book fairly. So are you unknowable? Are you projecting personality? <laughs> well, I suppose we all have a, we, you know, we all hope we have a little bit of uh, enigma about ourselves. Right, 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 right. How's the book going? Is it selling? Apparently. <laughs> and thank you, for, thank you for letting me talk about it. Yeah. I'm gratified by the number of people that I've met who, you know, have firm opinions and uh, one way or the other and, you know, found something of interest in the book. You know, you, know, you never know as you're, you're sitting there writing about it yourself, whether, whether it will speak to other people. Now, you have a picture on the front of the book, The Trial of Lizzie Borden, a true story by you, Kara Robertson, and the, the picture is quite attractive of a young woman. Is that her picture? No, 
I uh. think so. <laughs> <laughs> That's the publisher's choice. And um, it speaks to the, uh, the disappointment that the journalist felt when they actually saw her. You know, yeah. that she was just ordinary. kind of ordinary. Yeah. 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 And there was that moment in the book, which you come back to a couple of times, in which her sister does something that really displeases her. And she accuses her, and the, and the matron hears it, of giving her away or, or of endangering her. Could you talk about that for a minute? Right. We don't actually know what was the subject of the disagreement between the sisters. But we know that Emma visited uh, Lizzie in jail every day. And there was uh, one day in which the matron of the jail overheard an argument. And Lizzie told Emma, uh, you've given me away. Uh, and Lizzie turned her back to her sister, faced the wall, and didn't speak to her during the rest of the visit, which lasted a few hours. And I think that gives you some sense of the relationship between the sisters and also the uh, the firmness uh, in Lizzie Borden. Now, at the end of the book, you're talking about what became of everybody. I love those sort of postscripts of what happened. And Emma goes away, and they're, they're estranged. Uh, do you think that estrangement, I'm only asking for an opinion here, do you think that estrangement comes all the way from the trial? Well, the short answer is, of course, I don't know. Um, we know that she left in 1905, uh, and she had sought counsel from her pastor about what she described as uh, things going on in the, in the house, in the house that they'd moved to together after the murders, that she you know, thought that she couldn't put up with. And so it's not entirely clear what this refers to, and it does seem like it postdates uh, the murder itself. And Emma certainly never said that she thought that her sister had uh, killed their father and stepmother. Well, it's quite clear Emma didn't want her to be convicted. You're right about that, of course. Do I, do I telling you what you don't want you know? But, <laughs> but, but, but on the other hand, uh, she might have thought she did it. But clearly there might have been other social reasons or other things not to have a sister who was convicted of killing your parents. That's true. And it, as you point out, Emma's testimony uh, that she is the one who told Lizzie to burn the dress uh, is critical. Um, and also her support of Lizzie Borden is important, both you know, financially, she's, she splits the cost of the defense, but also um, the sense that the remaining member of her family still supports her is very important for her public image at the time of the trial. Um, we know that the sisters, uh, you know, they split in 1905 and uh, never spoke to each other again. And you think that was because, if anybody knows, you do. Well, many speculate that uh, that um, it, it was because Lizzie had taken up with an actress uh, and, you know, kind of belying her earlier church activities had become interested in these theatrical types. And there's also the uh, suspicion though most of this comes after the fact as opposed to at the time that she might have, you know, that there might have been a sexual or at least a romantic relationship with this actress and that that might have been the thing wow. that pushed um, Emma over the edge. Now, I should say there were also rumors about a handsome coachman, um, but I don't think that that was um, 
about Lizzie's relationship with him exactly, more about her toleration of his activities. You know, there is such a layered aspect to all of this. How about Bridget the maid? Some people think she did it. That's right. I think everyone who was even uh, remotely in the area at the time has been fingered as a suspect by by one writer or another. Uh, but Bridget Sullivan is the is the only really other plausible candidate because she was in the house at and the same time. Mad. As you point out, she was mad because they told her to clean the windows when she <laughs> Right. That seems like a pretty thin uh, motive for murder. Uh, and it also um, overlooks the fact that she was outside at the time that Mrs. Borden was killed. Abby Borden was killed upstairs and uh, Bridget was seen washing windows outside by a, a neighboring housemaid. You know, if you assume that whoever killed uh, Mrs. Borden also killed Mr. Borden, then that rules her out. You know, there are people who, who think that perhaps they were working in concert and uh, that's you know, that would take care of, of the timeline, but uh, it's it doesn't make a lot of sense hmm. historically, I'd say. One of the things the brilliant uh, defense lawyers were able to do was to dredge up everybody who had walked around town who looked suspicious to anybody else. <laughs> it was quite fascinating. <laughs> That's right. They, they do a terrific job of um, trying to narrow the window between the murders because that's the, the biggest barrier to having an outsider. And they also do a great job of, of um, finding anyone, as you say, who, who saw someone maybe vaguely disreputable or who could possibly uh, fit the profile of uh, a crazed killer um, who was walking in the vicinity. Uh, my personal favorite is Dr. Handy's wild-eyed young man. That was great. I want to go back to my hero here at the house, uh, Judge Dewey. Judge Dewey, of course, is uh, semi-famous in Great Barrington. But the most famous person is W.E.B. Du Bois. And Judge Dewey was incredibly kind to Du Bois. Got him money, got him educated, did all of this stuff. I'm thinking that, uh, you know, Dewey deserves the treatment too. Um, here. <laughs> <laughs> he did all of that, yeah. Yeah, the, the quality of the people who are involved in the case is very high, I'd say. Uh, and uh, they're all probably worth a you know separate study. Um, it would be nice if people were um, accorded the accorded that kind of treatment uh, just for good works as opposed to because they're you know participants in a in a horrible murder. Have you now gotten you know Lizzie out of your out of your system, or is there more to come, Lizzie? <laughs> no, no. I think I'm. I think I. It's time to move on. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's so interesting in terms of contemporary criminal justice, because so much of what you're reading here is stuff you read about every day in every trial. And that parallelism is fascinating to me. I like I like the fact that you've done that. Yeah, I think I think that there's a lot about the Gilded Age in, a, in a, uh, American history that really mirrors our the present moment. Mm -hmm. uh, and we also see a lot in this trial, you know, in terms of fears of outsiders and the way that you know, it's very easy to project um, onto others all the all of our own fears and anxieties. So in the end, the question is, who can commit a murder? Can somebody not only commit a murder, let's just posit, uh, hypothesize that Lizzie did it, but then can sit there and um, 
never crack about the whole thing. Right. <laughs> I mean, that's the that's the that's the problem you know, that Lizzie Borden presents is that is that we you know, we have the we don't know that much about her childhood that isn't tainted by the fact that, you know, she's involved in this major case. Uh, but we know a little bit about her. I mean, she's not so abnormal that she doesn't go to school or have any friends. And we know that she lived a fairly unremarkable life after the murders. So she presents us with that exact conundrum. You know, is it possible for someone to just snap in that horrifyingly violent way in a moment, uh, in a moment or, you know, in quite a few moments, if you think about how many acts, I'm sorry, um, wax there were, but then, you know, just sort of go on as if nothing happened. One of the things, because there was all the speculation newspapers about lovers and pregnancy and this and that, much of which was nonsense. Um, how about um, the potential for being gay? Was that, do you think that there was anybody who raised that in terms of some of the people that um, she was close to? That's the, that issue comes up after the fact because of her um, relationship of sorts. It, uh, you know, it's, it's unclear how, whether it, you know, had a physical dimension or not with the actress, Nance O'Neill. Uh, and then people look at her past through that lens and think, oh, well, this is perhaps someone who, um, you know, that she was a lesbian and she couldn't be, uh, ex express her sexuality. And so that that was a motivation for the murder. Again, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult to know. Women of that era in that class would have lived in, um, what you might call a homosocial world, you know, an only, you know, a female centered world. And that might look different to us now than it did to them at the time. Let's assume she got away with it. Let's assume she did it and she got away with it. How different is that from, look, you're the lawyer, you're the Supreme Court person. How different is that from what we got today? Do people still get away with things? <laughs> I'm sure that that's the case, uh, that, you know, that there, that there are these cases uh, that, that consume an outsized amount of resources, you know, where, particularly where the defendant is able to spend a lot to get the best possible defense uh, and effectively, you know, um, uh, media consultants and all that. And I suppose it's possible. I'd say the popular mood right now is um, much more about writing wrongful convictions, uh, that that's the bigger concern because... You know, I think we can now see how there, you know, is systemic racism and, and that that might have resulted in a number of wrongful convictions. Okay, and following up on that very quickly, um, Me Too. Uh, we have the Me Too movement. You mentioned it earlier. Is it possible Lizzie becomes a hero or a heroine out of all of this? Yeah, I think, I think that it's possible to see her that way. Uh, and that's certainly the, um, the perspective of the most recent film version. Uh, which stars Chloe Sevigny and Kristen Stewart, you know, it piles on the motivations so that the murders are really a desperate act of this woman trapped in an intolerable situation, someone who needs independence from the rapacious men in her life. And striking out with a hatchet is the only way that she can do it. We've been talking to Kara Robertson, a brilliant lawyer, writer, the trial of Lizzie Borden. And um, it's a great read. I read every page, couldn't stop. And Kara, thank you so much for giving us all of this very valuable time. 
It's a book well worth reading. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. listening to Dr. Alan Chartok, President and CEO of WAMC Northeast Public Radio and Professor Emeritus at the University at Albany. For more information on WAMC's In Conversation with Alan series or to order a physical copy, call 1-800-323-9262 or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or on the Google Play Store. Thank you.